By decree of Larry Hayward, the first reading has been abridged. We are in the sixth chapter of Romans, but we're going uh, 9a, 10, and 11. So listen for the word of God. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our second scripture reading is also a few verses from the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. As I understand, you were told Maggie and I had a wonderful two weeks away, spending most of every day on the same beach in Maui, seated next to her sister and brother-in-law, just surrounded by books or iPads, just a few hundred feet from the entrance to the resort in which we were staying. It was a great vacation. It was well-timed in what must be one of the most beautiful settings in all of God's created order. I'm proud of the rest I received, a human necessity that I sometimes neglect. I'm proud of the books I read, the titles of which, were I to share them with you, would only confirm rumors of my aversion to anything contemporary. I'm most proud that with this trip to Hawaii, I have now visited all 50 states in our nation, though I have yet to reach my goal of seeing a game in each major league stadium. (laughs) This vacation provided me with the renewal that God doubtless intended when he included rest in creation. The time away from work deepened my love for it. The time away from you increased my fondness for you. And the rest I received is only attainable because of the confidence I have in the excellent and joyful hands with which I lead this church, which are usually competent. <laughs> Payback. For that, too, I am thankful. Let us pray. God of life, we give you thanks that you included in creation both a command to work and a command to rest. Bless the work that we do as well as the rest that we need. Guide my particular work of preaching, that through your Spirit it may bear witness to Christ in this time and place in this day and age in which you have placed us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As is often the case, I will take a certain number of Sundays in the summer to preach a series 
on a particular topic or portion of Scripture. Early this year, I decided to preach on the broad topic of the relationship between Christ and culture, between our faith and the world in which we live. I will base much of what I say in this series on a classic of American theology entitled Christ and Culture, published in 1951 by H. Richard Niebuhr. I have read this book four times, most recently on the beach. In the fall of 2008, I led a Sunday evening course on this book at Westminster. In a former church in 2002, I preached a sermon series on this book, though all of my sermons from that year have been accidentally deleted from the computer, leaving no record of what I said in that series, which is probably just as well. I'm also aware that some of you have studied this topic and book in a recent offering through the Reformed Institute. But I must confess that I'm a little more nervous about the series this time than I was when I preached it in 2002 or taught it in 2008. And I think I'm nervous for this reason. There are at present so many issues in our domestic politics, international relations, popular culture, and even religious lives that it is easy for us to take one aspect of our faith and one development in our culture and construct our entire relationship between Christ and culture through what we celebrate or grieve over that one issue or development in culture. In other words, putting on the hat of faith, it is easy to critique or reject an aspect of culture. And putting on the hat of culture, it is easy to critique or reject an aspect of faith. In addition, I think I'm nervous Because not only are these issues of faith and culture numerous in our lives right now, but they come and go with the speed of an Asila Express from D.C. to Boston. For example, on June the 7th, just six Sundays ago, I preached a sermon entitled, The Pace of Change. In the introduction... I mentioned several events that had occurred just that prior week. Debate over the extension of the USA Freedom Act. The unexpected indictment of Dennis Hastert. Caitlyn Jenner. The Duggar family. The death of Bo Biden. Does any of that news seem current today? Since that sermon just six weeks ago, we have seen the shooting at the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, the tremendous acts of forgiveness on the part of the families of victims, the historic removal of the Confederate flag from that state's capital, 
as well as a renewed consciousness of the quintessential American hymn, Amazing Grace. Since that June 7th sermon, we've seen the Supreme Court uphold both the Affordable Care Act and rule that marriage equality is the law in all 50 states. This week alone, we've seen the negotiation of a nuclear agreement with Iran and the beginning of congressional response concerning its approval. We've seen the shooting of young military personnel in Chattanooga, which has all the marks of a, of a Lone Ranger terrorist attack, followed by a community-wide vigil in that relatively small city that was led by Jewish, Christian, and Islamic clergy. In the literary world, we've seen what one reviewer has described as a bleak early draft tarnish the legacy of one of our most cherished heroes. As the Atticus Finch we admired early in his adult life and early in our lives has turned out to be not so heroic later in life. In addition to the forgiveness in Charleston and the interfaith vigil in Chattanooga, religion itself has been in the news in several instances. Pope Francis has released his first papal letter on climate change, certain to increase his already riveting popularity with some and tarnish it with others. A Pew Research study has been released just the past few weeks showing that the percentage of American adults who identify as, as Christian has dropped from 78% in 2007 to 71% in 2014. That is a drop of one percentage point per year. The statistical arm of our own denomination has released figures showing that we declined from 1.76 million last in 2013 to 1.66 million in 2014 meaning that our membership has declined by 60% over the last 50 years, 28 of that in the last decade. All of this news, I repeat, all of this news has occurred in the last six weeks alone. The Asila Express roars by. While it is natural to in, enter the question of Christ and culture through a particular issue of the day, the relationship between Christ and culture is larger than any one issue. It is larger than any one event. It is larger than any one historical development or period. And it is larger than any one doctrine or teaching of our faith. Through this sermon series... I hope to provide you all with some biblical and theological background by which all of us can think about how we relate as Christians to our culture, how we relate over the long span of our lives, how we relate through the multiple dimensions of our faith, how we relate in the context of the many issues that arise in our world today. 
The Asilo Express does not tarry long at the station. Each passenger must decide whether or not to buy a ticket, whether or not to board, and if boarding, which seat to occupy. I hope that this series will encourage you to board and help you decide which seat to select on any given day. In the remaining few minutes of this sermon, I want to look briefly by what we mean by Jesus Christ in, in this series and at the overall ways in which Christians have approached the relationship between Christ and culture. Niebuhr points out that for many people, Jesus Christ comes to us as a principle in the form of a person. For example, when we think about Christ, many of us most relate to Christ as the one who brings, teaches, embodies love. Love of God. Love of neighbor. Others of us see Christ as the person who brings hope. Still others view Christ as the person who is most radically obedient to God, to God's will, to God's law. For some, Christ is the exemplar and bestower of faith. For others, it is humility, sacrifice, the giving of his life that marks Christ for them. Niebuhr acknowledges that the Jesus Christ of the New Testament possesses each of these virtues, each of these characteristics. But he also notes that each of these is expressed in Christ's conduct and teaching in a manner that seems extreme and is disproportionate to secular cultural wisdom. It is in this gap between what Christ teaches and what he embodies on the one hand and our ordinary secular cultural wisdom and way of doing things on the other hand, it is in the gap between these two that the issue of Christ and culture arises for us. Niebuhr also says that Christ practices none of these virtues or characteristics, nor does he enjoin us to practice them apart from the will of God. Christ is not just the embodiment of love. He is not just the principle of self-sacrifice. He is not just the example of humility. He is these things because he is the Son of God. And he calls us to embody these things not simply because they are good and noble, but because in embodying them, we are seeking to do the will of God. 
Our texts for today reveal this unique origin of Christ with God. And the reason I abridged them was to only give you those verses that emphasize this connection. The Apostle Paul writes, The death Christ died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Likewise, the author of Hebrews writes, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. Because Christ is raised from the dead and lives to God, we are above all else alive not to culture, not to self, but we are alive to God in Jesus Christ. Likewise, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus who is the Son of God, we approach not the throne of reason, not the throne of science, not the throne of law, not the throne of society, not the throne of worldly wisdom, not the throne of state, not the throne of nation, not the throne of economic system, not the throne of political system, not the throne of family, not the throne of church, with the same allegiance with which we approach the throne of grace. The throne we ultimately approach is God's throne. And it is from that throne, the throne of grace, that we then turn our attention and approach all these other thrones in our culture. Niebuhr traces five ways that Christians have related to culture across the centuries, going all the way back to the New Testament and through the early church and the medieval period and the Reformation period and the 19th and 20th centuries, 19th and 20th centuries. In tracing these five ways, he emphasizes that none of these ways exists in pure form. Most Christians and most churches, he says, have tendencies of several, if not all five of them. I want to name them now, and then we will look at these five ways, one per Sunday for the next five Sundays. The five ways are these. Christ against culture. The Christ of culture. Christ above culture. Christ and culture in paradox. And Christ the transformer of culture. In the weeks ahead, I hope I can help you better understand these types so that you can best determine situation by situation when it is appropriate to stand in opposition to or withdraw from culture. 
when it is appropriate to see Christ at work in and through culture and seek to join Him there. When it is appropriate to walk within culture looking up at and being drawn to the kingdom of Christ. When it is appropriate to walk within culture with all its beauty and pain looking forward to that day when culture will be fully redeemed. Or when it is appropriate to join Christ as He seeks to do the work of transforming culture into the way God intends, into the kingdom God is creating. Now I realize that I have not given you many answers today, though this was not really a sermon for answers. I recognize that with all the information I have provided you in this sermon, you may feel more confused or in the dark now than you did when you entered the sanctuary. That is sometimes an occupational hazard of coming to a church like Westminster. It's sometimes a hazard of welcoming me back from vacation. But as I say in the beginning of nearly every biblical course that I teach, if you are confused, and if you're more confused as a result of what I say than you were ahead of time, but if you are confused, hopefully you're confused at a higher level. 